Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. We're going to be covering the whole chapter this morning. To give some background, after serving his uncle Laban for 20 years, God finally appeared to Jacob again and told him to return home to Canaan. With the support of his wives, Rachel and Leah, Jacob took his family and fled without telling Laban. When Laban found out, he was angry, got a posse together, and followed in hot pursuit. On the way, however, God warned Laban not to mess with Jacob. When Laban finally caught up to Jacob, heated words were exchanged, but they made a peace treaty and a boundary, both promising not to cross it. But Jacob's potential trouble was not over yet. Twenty years ago, he had cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance and blessing, and Esau had vowed to kill him. Would Esau hold a grudge after all these years? Jacob was about to find out. Let's start reading verses 1 to 5. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. Let's pray. Lord, you said that apart from you, we can do nothing. So we pray this morning that you would work through your word and through your Holy Spirit to touch our lives and draw us into a closer relationship with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of the places Jacob stopped on his way back to Canaan, Jacob encountered some angels at a place he named Mahanaim, which means two camps. Jacob said, this is the camp of God. So the two camps may be referring to Jacob's camp and God's camp, or it could be a reference to the fact that, as we will soon see, Jacob divided his family and possessions into two camps. We wish we knew more about this encounter with angels, though. Did the angels appear as human, as they appeared to Abraham? Or did they appear as otherworldly beings, like they did at the birth of Jesus? Did they say anything to Jacob? Or were they just silent? None of that is important to the story. What is important, however, is that Jacob should have gotten from this appearance is that God, who told Jacob to go back home, was still with him. There was no need for him to be afraid of Esau. But according to verse 7, Jacob was in great fear and distress anyway. As large as Jacob's family and flocks had become, Jacob was afraid Esau would hear of his return. So Jacob took some preventive action and sent messengers back to Esau. So in verses 4 to 5, Jacob instructs his servants to tell Esau three things. First, in verse 4, I have been staying with Laban and have remained with, it, with there till now. 
Now, this may have been intended to answer what was probably one of Esau's most pressing questions. Where have you been? Second, in verse 5, Jacob says, I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. In other words, Jacob may be hinting, I'm not coming back to steal anything else from you. I have all I need. Third, at the end of verse 5, Jacob says, Now I am sending this message to my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. In other words, can we just put the past behind us and let bygones be bygones? I think Jacob is probably trying to judge what Esau's reaction will be to his arrival. The reaction was concerning. Verse 6 says, When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Now, why would Esau need 400 men just to welcome Jacob back? That was the size of a pretty large army back then. This did not look good, and Jacob was terrified. Verses 7 and 8. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So Jacob is scared. He takes some precautions to ensure that if Esau did have bad intentions, hopefully half of Jacob's party would be able to flee to safety. Jacob was a wealthy man, but he didn't have an army and could never stand against Esau's 400 men. But what could Jacob do? He couldn't turn back. He had established a boundary with Laban, and turning back would violate that treaty. He would be defeated by Laban to the north and by Esau to the south. From Jacob's perspective, his possessions, his family, and even his life are now in serious danger, and he could no longer rely on his deception to save him. He was helpless and at the end of his rope. So Jacob did something he was never recorded as doing before. Now, for the first time, as far as we know, Jacob finally turns to God in prayer. Verse 9, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Now this tells us that Jacob had not forgotten that it was God who was sending him back home with the promise to prosper him. So you would think that Jacob would think, okay, God did not send me back home to kill me by the hand of Esau. On the contrary, God promised to prosper me. So I have nothing to worry about. But Jacob was afraid anyway. In verse 10, Jacob continues, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Way back when Jacob's grandfather Abraham had sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac, Abraham had given that servant a huge amount of wealth for the journey. Isaac did not do the same for his son Jacob. Twenty years ago, when Jacob had fled Esau, Jacob apparently didn't have much more than the clothes on his back and the staff in his hand. But now, Jacob acknowledges that God had kept his promise and had truly blessed him with two camps full of blessings. 
So after praising God and acknowledging God's blessing, Jacob gets to the point in verses 11 and 12. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me. And also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. If verse 12 sounds familiar, it should. That is from the covenant promise that God made with Abraham, which was passed down to Isaac and now to Jacob. From Jacob's perspective, that covenant was once again in danger. If Esau slaughtered Jacob and his family, that would be the end of the covenant. So Jacob is reminding God of God's promise to keep the covenant, to prosper Jacob, to make his descendants like the sand of the sea. But prayer and trusting God does not mean passively sitting back and doing nothing. In verses 13 to 15, Jacob implemented a plan. Jacob selected an enormous gift to send to Esau. 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels along with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 30 donkeys, and a partridge in a pear tree. Well, okay, no partridges. In verse 16, Jacob then put all the animals in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. In other words, as Esau and his men were traveling toward Jacob, they would encounter a herd of 220 goats. When Esau asked about them, Jacob's servants were to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and Jacob is coming behind us. Esau would travel further and come upon a herd of 220 sheep. The shepherds would say, These belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and Jacob is coming behind us. As Esau traveled further, he would come upon 30 camels along with their young. Jacob's servants would say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and Jacob is coming behind us. Later on, Esau would encounter the herd of 40 cows and 10 bulls, and the cowboys would say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and Jacob is coming behind us. And finally, Esau would encounter the herd of 30 donkeys, and Jacob's servants would say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau. And Jacob is coming behind us. Jacob hoped that all of these waves of gifts would pacify his brother's wrath. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed at his camp until evening. According to verses 22 and 23, that night, Jacob sent his family and his possessions south across the Jabbok River. Although the Jabbok River was relatively shallow, this would have been quite challenging since the Jabbok River flowed through deep canyons, and getting all those animals down one side and up the other side of the canyon would have been difficult. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed behind all alone. The text doesn't tell us why Jacob stayed behind by himself. My guess is that Jacob was hoping that if all the gifts failed to pacify Esau, maybe seeing Jacob's family would finally persuade Esau to have mercy on him. After all, Jacob's family was also Esau's extended family, Esau's in-laws, nephews, niece. Whatever the case, we are then confronted with one of the strangest stories in the Bible. 
Verse 24 says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. This raises numerous questions. For example, the text says Jacob was alone. So who was this man, and where did he come from? And why was there a fight, and who started it? The text doesn't tell us. The answers are not important for the story. When you study the Old Testament, you have to get used to the unanswered questions. When you watch a historical movie like Torah, 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 or Midway, you could raise all kinds of questions that the movies don't answer. And that's because those questions are not important to the point the scriptwriter was trying to make. The same is true of the Old Testament stories and even the Gospels. They don't even try to answer all the possible questions that we might have because those questions are not important to the story they are trying to tell. Anyway, in verses 24 to 26, a struggle ensued. Now remember, Jacob was strong enough to move a large rock all by himself that three shepherds were unable to move together. Since the man Jacob wrestled with was unable to beat Jacob, the man dislocated Jacob's hip just by touching it. Jacob was now somewhat incapacitated by a dislocated hip, which I'm sure would have been very painful. But Jacob might have made a good Navy SEAL. SEALs are trained to keep on going and never give up regardless of the pain. And similarly, Jacob fights through the pain of a dislocated hip and refuses to let the man go. In verse 26, Jacob told him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I think that when the man dislocated Jacob's hip just by touching it, Jacob then suspected that this person was an angel. So my guess is that Jacob's request for blessing is a request for assurance that God will protect him from Esau. The man then changed Jacob's name and blessed him. In verse 28, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob may have suspected that he had been wrestling with an angel, but wrestling with God? I mean, how could that be? Maybe Jacob remembered that God once appeared to his grandfather Abraham as a human being. So in verse 30, Jacob called the place Paniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Paniel means face of God. Theologians call these physical appearances of God theophanies. You should be aware, however, that some evangelical scholars point out that the word for God here is Elohim which is a generic term for God. It usually refers to God, but depending on the context, it can also refer to angels. Since Hosea 12.4 says that Jacob struggled with an angel, some think it was the angel of the Lord with whom Jacob struggled. But the angel of the Lord is often identified with God himself. So regardless of whether Jacob struggled with God directly or indirectly, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which apparently means struggle with God. But if the man Jacob wrestled with was God, why couldn't he beat Jacob in a wrestling match? The answer is that God either chose not to beat Jacob, like I have often chosen to let my kids and grandkids beat me in wrestling matches, or it could be that God assumed the physical limitations of becoming human 
And in this case, the physical body he assumed was not as strong as Jacob's. When Jesus became human, he also took on physical limitations. Anyway, when verse 32 says, Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I think Moses intends us to understand this wrestling match literally and not just as a vision or dream. In fact, this historical event was so significant that Israelites chose not to eat the tendon attached to the animal's hip socket in memory of this event. And according to verse 32, that practice continued to this day, which means it continued even down to the time when Moses wrote all this down. In fact, even now, long after Moses' time, kosher butchers still remove the sciatic nerve from the meat in memory of this event. Now let's put this story in a broader perspective. And remember, I believe these are true stories. The story began with Jacob cheating Esau out of both his blessing and inheritance. So Jacob has to flee for his life. But on his way to Laban, Jacob encounters some angels, and God speaks to him in a vision. God promises to be with Jacob and bless him. And Jacob says that if God will indeed be with him and watch over him and provide for him, God will become his God. Now, after 20 difficult years in exile, God sends Jacob back home. And on the way, Jacob encounters the angels of God once again, indicating that God is still with him. But Jacob's then between the rock and a hard place. He's between Laban in the north and Esau in the south, both of whom could crush him. Not only that, but the once physically strong Jacob then becomes either temporarily or maybe even permanently disabled by God. Although Jacob can try to pacify Esau with gifts, Esau might just take them and kill Jacob anyway. So ultimately, Jacob is now totally dependent on God. After acknowledging his dependence and weakness and crying out to God in prayer, Jacob is now ready to return to the promised land which God had promised. But first, he must confront Esau and his 400 men. Our lessons this morning are all about dependence on God. It seems to me that the past 20 years of Jacob's life were all about bringing Jacob to the end of his rope. God didn't need Jacob's flocks and herds. God is the one who gave them to Jacob in the first place. God certainly didn't need Jacob's business savvy or skill at deception. God brought Jacob to the end of his rope, between a rock and a hard place, between Esau and Laban, before Jacob finally cried out to God for help. Similarly, God doesn't need our strength or money or knowledge or anything else. God wants us to acknowledge our total dependence on him. It is the same message Jesus had when he told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. In fact, it is through our brokenness and weakness that God can use us most powerfully. In 2 Corinthians 12, God told Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul writes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Folks, we are always at the end of our rope, whether we realize it or not. Everything we have, including our health, could be gone tomorrow, literally. All it takes is one tornado or traffic accident. Apparently, it took 20 years before Jacob finally realized that he was at the end of his rope, 
and cried out to God in prayer. We shouldn't wait that long before we do the same. Second, Jacob finally realized his dependence on God, but that didn't keep him from trying to make amends with Esau by sending gifts. Prayer and dependence on God do not mean sitting around passively and doing nothing. Just as one example, let's say God brings to your mind a neighbor who is in serious financial trouble and you are in a position to help. Don't just pray for them. Help them. In James 2, we read, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about their physical need. What good is it? James goes on to say that faith without works is dead. So pray in total dependence on God. And then do something, as Jacob did. Finally, before the self-sufficient and deceptive Jacob can enter the promised land, he must learn to stop trusting in his own strength and rely fully on God. The same is true of us. One of my favorite parables is Luke 18. Jesus says two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, a respected religious leader. The other, a despised tax collector. The Pharisee thanked God that he was not like other people robbers, adulterers, or sinners. He fasted twice a week and paid his tithes. The tax collector, on the other hand, beat his chest, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee was relying on his own goodness and good deeds for his standing with God. The tax collector, like Jacob, threw himself on God's mercy in total dependence on God. And Jesus said it was the tax collector and not the Pharisee who was made right with God. Unless we, like Jacob, realize that we are at the end of our rope, and like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, fully comprehend that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, unless that becomes very real to us and we cry out to God for his mercy and grace, we will never see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who thinks they really don't need you, bring them to the end of their rope and show them their need for repentance. Then give them a heart of total dependence and devotion to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.